Hey, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Now, we're going to take a bit of a different approach, if you will, to our topic tonight. And one of the things I think it's important for us to recognize is that while there are fascinating things happening around the world, specifically in the Middle East, there are many other things that are happening that are prophetic in nature. Now, I heard your pastor has an interest in prophecy. Just a little bit. So I know that you are well-versed in many of the things going on around the world. I know that many of you are uh, watch Breaking News and World News Briefing and are kept up to date on the things happening in the Middle East. However, there are other intriguing elements concerning eschatology that don't always get the press that the incredible events taking place around the world receive. However, they are no less stunning. And therefore, we're going to look at things tonight in kind of a reverse order. I've been teaching the book of Daniel on Wednesday nights at our own church and found this to be a common practice of the Lord where he will tell of a destination and then he'll give the details after he says where things will be progressing. Now, tonight what we're going to do is establish a fulfilled prophecy and then we're going to look at how we got there. We're going to move in reverse order to its inception and cause, if you will, And my hope tonight is that as we examine how we got there, we'll be more convinced that we are there and we are living as it was in the days of Noah. Now, in Luke 21, 28, Jesus said, now when these things, what? What's the next word? Is it up there? There we go. When these things, what? Begin to happen. Look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Those are wonderful verses, but they're not the ones I'm reading. (laughs) Now, I believe if we were to put a label on, and no man knows the day or the hour, amen? Amen. We're not going to be so ridiculous as the date set or anything along those lines, but we have to remember that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for not being able to discern the signs of his coming. And we have way more information about his return than we do concerning his first coming. Now, Jesus said when these things are at their inception, if you will, when they begin to happen, look up for your redemption draws near. Now, again, if we were to put a label on where we are chronologically, I would say that we are at the end of the beginning. Things have begun to come to pass, and there is a transition that is about to take place, and it happens really fast. As a matter of fact, it happens in a moment in twinkling of an eye, and we're out of here. Somebody say amen. Now, Here's how we know that we are at such a time and place. In Matthew 24, 37 to 39, there we go. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days when? Before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be? Now, we could spend quite a bit of time dissecting this particular passage and arriving at a bit of doctrinal housekeeping, if you will. But let me just say this. The majority opinion of scholars out there is that this is describing the days before the second coming, the days before Jesus physically returns to the earth. However, we need to remember that the surest form of prophetic interpretation is fulfillment. Once things are fulfilled, then we know for sure there's a lot of things we can now look back on historically that those in previous generations didn't understand 
and weren't able to see. Now, there's a couple of things that we need to clear up concerning this time that Jesus mentioned, the time before the flood. Now, remember, the flood was a specific and limited time period of God's wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. And that opens the door for the possibility that the time before the flood to be descriptive of the days before the tribulation and not the days before the second coming. As a matter of fact, I think we can only arrive at that conclusion if we just let Scripture speak for itself. Now, here's why this is worth mentioning and needs to set the stage for our time together tonight. Now, if what Jesus said is speaking about when he mentioned the days before the flood, if he is speaking about the days before the second coming, that means the days before the second coming are going to be just as they were the days before the flood, right? Well, let's see if that's true. That means right before the second coming of Jesus, they would be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage with kind of a business-as-usual attitude and an indifference to the obvious signs that judgment is on the horizon. However, we are given specific details concerning the time before Jesus' return in Revelation 16 and 18. It's a time where God is pouring out his wrath. During Revelation 16 in particular, there is cataclysmic judgment, one right after the other, one on the heels of another, when God is pouring out his wrath in its undiluted fullness during the pouring out of the bowls. It is a time of catastrophic and cataclysmic geological and astrophysical judgment that is unprecedented in human history. Now, we also know from Revelation 17 and 18 that when Babylon is destroyed, the merchants of the earth mourn, saying, who's going to buy all our stuff? Babylon has now been destroyed. Where are we going to sell our goods to? So that tells us one thing. Buying and selling business as usual will not be the case right before the second coming. And by the way, get ready. This is deep. Are you ready? Revelation 16, 17, and 18 come before Revelation 19. You want to write that down real quick? I'll wait for you. What happens in Revelation 19? Jesus comes again. So 16 to 18 describe what it's like before the second coming of Jesus. So first of all, there'll be no buying and selling. There'll be no business as usual attitude. What else do we know about the days before the flood? Well, they were marrying and giving in marriage. Well, Revelation 18, 23 says, the light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. Now listen, and the voice of the bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. Now that tells us prior to the second coming, there will be no marrying and giving in marriage, nor will there be the business-as-usual attitude that there was before the flood. Before the second coming, there's only going to be one thing going on the earth, going on on the earth, and that is people are going to be in survival mode because the cataclysmic events described in Revelation 16 are the worst that the world has ever seen. Now, with that said, I believe what Jesus is talking about when he references the days before the flood is the time before a specific period of judgment where God is judging the world and it is being manifested globally. Now, the time prior to the flood is described rather in regards to human character. Now, this is what we know 
about this some 1,700-year-long period, we have limited information concerning the days of Noah. It's often referred to as the antediluvian period, the pre-Noah time period. This is what we know about those days. The thoughts and intents of man's heart was only evil continually. Are we there yet? Without question. And the earth was filled with violence, according to Genesis 6, 5, and 13. Are we there yet? So man has a mind filled with evil thoughts today, and there is violence filling the earth today. So therefore, it is as it was right now in the days of Noah prior to the flood. Now, we also need to remember that the Messiah is coming again first to meet the saints in the air, and then he's going to come back and rule on the earth as the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he's going to rule from Jerusalem with a rod of iron. Now, before the flood pictures for us the time before the rapture. It is a season where a materialistic world is indifferent to the obvious signs of impending judgment, carrying on as though judgment is not coming. Is God going to judge the world? Absolutely, no question about it. So our question tonight is, what will the moral character of the world be like before the rapture? Well, it's described generally as man's thoughts being filled with evil and indifference to the signs of impending judgment and the earth is filled with violence. But Paul also gave us further indication as to the moral character of man right uh, before the flood at the, or before the judgment of God, right at the end of the last days. He said in 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5, know this, that in what time period? The last days, what, time, what uh, type of times would come? Perilous times would come. And here's what makes them perilous. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of who? Having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such people do what? Turn away. How's that for a checklist? Are we there yet? Without question. We could check all the boxes, I believe, so to speak, regarding the moral digression and character flaws that dominate the world right before the rapture of the church and the ensuing tribulation. So here's where I want to place our eschatological focus, if you will, tonight. It seems clear that we are at the end of the beginning. The earth has long been filled with violence. The thoughts and intents of man heart, man's heart are so evil, they invent things that are evil and call them good. Things like abortion, killing babies in the womb, and these other things that we see in our world today. So here's our focal point tonight. How did we get there? How did we arrive in such a place? Now, is there evidence we can look back on, much like we look at the Middle East and see things in recent history develop to tell us that we are indeed at the time of the end, and it's time for us to lift up our heads for our redemption is near? Well, I think we have answers here tonight, and it's from Romans chapter 1, where we'll find that things as are as they were in the days of Noah. Now listen, Romans is a, there's a historical narrative that opens up chapter one, but it contains a moral digression that is true in any age of history. And it's called the consequential wrath of God. The law of sowing and reaping. Do this and you are going to reap that. Sow to the wind and you will reap the whirlwind. Is that a geographically specific thing? Or is that something that's generic to all the world in any course of, or season of history? It's true all the time, isn't it? 
And therefore, what we're going, isn't it? Okay, you're not convincing me very much. It's true all the time, isn't it? And therefore, what we read in Romans chapter 1, if it's practiced by any nation, they're going to see the same result as what Paul wrote to the church at Rome. Now, he started with this in Romans 1, 15 to 17. Paul wrote, So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone. Say everyone. Everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, simply a chronology, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, and here's the most quoted Old Testament scripture in the New, Habakkuk 2, for the just shall live by what? By faith. Now a couple of historical considerations concerning what we just read from the Apostle Paul. Paul was writing to a culture, let's see if anything sounds familiar, to a culture where homosexuality was accepted widely as a part of life for both men and women. For some 200 years at the time of Paul's writing, the men who ruled the Roman Empire practiced homosexuality, often with young boys. At the time of Paul's writing, there was within the Roman Empire an approved homosexual prostitution that was even taxed by the government, and boy prostitutes even had a legal holiday. Legal marriage between same-gender couples was recognized in the Roman Empire. Is it sounding familiar? And the fact is, even some of the emperors married other men. At the very time that Paul wrote, Nero was emperor, and he took a boy named Sporus and had him castrated, and then he married him with a full wedding ceremony, brought him to the palace under a great procession, and made the boy his wife. And listen, later in life, Nero married another man, and that time Nero wasn't the husband, he played the role of the wife. And it was to this kind of society, now listen close, it was to such a culture and society that Paul said, I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel. It is the power of God. Jesus is still saving souls today, amen? amen. And it doesn't matter how dark our culture is, the light of the gospel is still able to rescue souls from death. And to this society, Paul says, and in a time such as this, he talks about the gospel being the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, chronologically to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And in this case, the Greek would not be an ethnic Greek. It would be a cultural Greek or a Greek-thinking person. Now, Paul would also say to the church at Corinth in 122 to 25 of 1 Corinthians, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ what? Crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I guess I should have told you this up front. I have a really short message tonight, but I've got a huge introduction. <laughs> and we're about halfway through it. Now, it was to a culture that thought the gospel was foolishness, that Paul said he was both ready and unashamed to preach the uncompromised gospel. And I submit to you tonight, we live in just such a day, yet the gospel will still prevail over the hearts that are willing to open to truth. Now, two things to note. Paul says, in the gospel is the righteousness of God, and within the gospel is the call to live by faith. 
And we hear a lot about faith today, and we need to realize that faith isn't a power in and of itself. Faith requires an object in which it is placed. The fact is, you're sitting on a chair tonight, right? And did your faith make that chair hold you up? Or was it constructed to hold you up, and you simply acted on the knowledge that you had? The chair didn't hold you up because you believe it would. The chair held you up because it was made to hold you up, and you sat on it because you believed that somebody you've never met or seen constructed the chair properly. And we're told in Hebrews 11.1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And faith in the context of Romans 1 is to believe what God has done through his son on the cross has the ability to save your soul. Do you believe that the blood of Jesus Christ has the capacity to cover all of your sins? That's an act of faith. You have an object, that being Christ on the cross. You are placing your faith in the work of God and therefore you are acting by faith on what has been done for you. Now we live again in an age where many think the gospel is foolishness. We live in an age where immorality is celebrated. We live in an age where purity is scorned and demeaned. And we still need to recognize and be ready to preach the gospel to every creature. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now listen, after Paul makes his declaration that he's ready to preach even in Rome, and that he is unashamed of the gospel even in Rome, he then identifies to the Roman church that there is a digression that the country has followed, and I believe we'll make the case tonight that our country has followed it as well. Now, what we'll find, first of all, the first step, and I want to present the digression to you tonight and some facts associated with it, and it will start in verses 18 through 21. So read along with me, please. Romans 1, 18 to 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be made known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were what? Were darkened. Now, one thing we have to remember is that there is in the Bible what's called the Proto-Evangelicum. It's the first preaching of the gospel. And it's found within the creation narrative all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, thus establishing a connection between the gospel of Christ and the creation of all things. God, who is creator of all things, has authority over all humanity, and therefore he has the right to define morality. And listen, there are absolute truths today, amen? And God has the right to define what type of life pleases him, and also declare that man is in need of a savior because he is separated by him from him by sin. And therefore, as we recognize the attack that's going on today, is there an assault on Genesis? Is the world seeking to promote something other than the creation narrative today and sell it to our, especially our students today? Well, therefore, we need to be better equipped to engage in the battle. And therefore, we need to understand exactly what the Bible is teaching in the connection between the gospel and the book of Genesis and the creation narrative. 
We're told in 3, 14 and 15 of Genesis that the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go and you shall eat the dust all the days of your life. Now here comes the Proto-Evangelicum, the first preaching of the gospel that happened immediately after man fell. The Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I don't want to get into the mechanics of reproductive biology. If you have any questions about that, you can ask Pastor Craig later. But let me just remind you that it's the man who bears the seed. The woman does not bear the seed. The woman bears the egg. And therefore, this is speaking of a supernaturally conceived male child that is going to bruise the serpent's head. And again, this reminds us that the gospel has its foundations in the creation story. Yet there are many today, even sadly within the church, that are ashamed of the story of creation. And they like to create things like theistic evolution and give a nod, if you will, to uh, the evolutionary model, something that we're going to disprove here in a moment in our second hour of this message. <laughs> there are people today in the church that are ashamed of the simple statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, they're ashamed of it because a lot of people with letters after their name on their business card, letters like PhD, much of the scientific community says, first there was nothing, then it blew up, and then nothing became everything gradually and without direction. Now, listen, I'm sorry, I don't buy that. And let me also say this, God is not okay with theistic evolution. He gave us the narrative as to how he created all things, and he also gave us a time frame. Evolution is not the mechanism that God used to create all things. The Bible says, and, and let me just add this, day can mean an indeterminate time period. You can use the word day, as in the days of Noah. That's not just one day, right? However, when the Bible gives the interpretation, there's no need to look any further, because the Bible establishes day one as a night-day cycle. Six times, he says, the evening and the morning were the first day. How do the Jews look at the calendar of the day uh, each day? How do they measure it? Do they start when? In the morning? No, each day begins when? At night. So they're following the creation neg neg uh, uh, narrative, if you will, and it's a message in and of itself because when we are born, we are born in a fallen state separated from God. Amen? And we need a Savior. And therefore, every night-day cycle says darkness to light, darkness to light, darkness to light, over and over and over again. We are born in darkness. We need to come to the light. So when the Bible says there are six night-day cycles, there's the interpretation. And there's no room for anything else. God created all that there is in six night-day cycles. And on the seventh day, he did what? He rested. Now, in case you didn't know, I don't believe in Darwinian evolution. I gave you a couple of hints there. I don't care what label you put on it, gradualism, materialism, any of those things. I don't believe in the march from molecules to man. I believe that God said, I'm going to create man in my likeness and image. And when he did, he was fully formed. And there was no gradualism that took place over the course of billions of years. Now, I believe that primarily because the Bible says that's how it is. And that's good enough for me. I heard the story of a professor 
there used to be a bumper sticker that floated around that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. He put that sticker on his door and he scratched out, I believe it. And his students came and said, why did you scratch out, I believe it? He said, because it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. If God said it, that settles it. And if God said in six night day cycles, he created everything and took the next day or Sunday off, then that's exactly what happened. And I'm good with that. What say you? Amen. Amen? Now, listen tonight. I believe that God created the heavens and the earth as the Bible presents it because the Bible says so. But I also believe it because materialism or gradualism is just bad science. Now, I want to introduce to some of you some terms that may be new to some of you, but they are essential in us entering the debate regarding origins and first life, so to speak. And we need to be able to engage in an intelligent and informed manner. Would you say amen? amen. Now, write these two terms down because I want you to know them, be familiar with them, and you can do a check with the theologian Google later if you can't remember what they mean. Now, the two terms are these. Jot these down. Irreducible complexity is the first term. Irreducible complexity. Now, these are the proverbial final nails in Darwinian evolution's coffin. Irreducible complexity and complex specified information. These are part of God's creative process, and we can see now today that God created everything instantaneously, and what he made in the beginning is what we see today. Now, all living organisms, complex life forms, are irreducibly complex. And by definition, irreducible complexity simply means each part has no value except within the function of the whole. That's what irreducible complexity means. Each part has no value except within the context of the whole. Now, in other words, if you remove any portion of a functional unit, the assigned function of the unit as a whole is going to be hindered or ceased. Now, let me explain this in a way that I can understand it. Our bodies can live without tonsils, right? We can live without an appendix. I'm kind of going down a list of all the things I've had removed from my body. You can lose a finger and still live, right? You can lose a toe. You can lose an appendage. You can even lose all four appendages and still live. But if you remove the lungs, heart, brain, what happens? Can't live anymore. Why? Because as a complex life form, you are irreducibly complex. There is a limit to how much you can digress and still survive. Now, we also need to recognize that the synchronicity, if you will, of function between the organs of any complex life form make gradualism impossible. Therefore, man had to be created as a fully functioning and developed human being in order to survive. As a matter of fact, we hear about the march from molecules to man, and those who are evolutionary microbiologists will even admit that if you are to reverse the order and make the march from complex man to the first life form or single-celled organism, that you have to stop at about step 400 because they can't breach that particular uh, threshold, if you will, because once you pass the 400th step in the gradual process of the incremental steps over billions of years in the process of evolution, complex life forms can't exist. So how did they come into being? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. Somebody say amen. amen. Now, here's something else for us to understand. There's a symbiotic relationship between organ function in any complex life form. Now, we recognize that, and you can't make the backwards jump, as we just said. 
Now, the answer we also said, that God created everything complex as it is, and therefore we need to understand what complex specified information is. You understand irreducible complexity, right? You can't live without certain parts of your body, but there is a, a level that cannot be breached and life still exists. Now, complex specified information is interesting. Now, we know that the way to identify whether an event was either by chance or if there was actually an intelligent agent involved is to identify whether or not complex specified information is present. Now, there are two kinds of information in the scientific disciplines. One is called Shannon information, and Shannon information is just general information. An example, the sky's blue. Is that information? Do this. Yeah, the sky's blue. That's just general, generic information. However, complex specified information is information that is productive in the sense like a recipe. If you were to take predetermined ingredients, place them in a prescribed container, heat them to a specific temperature for a specified uh, duration of time, you take the mixture of flour, eggs, milk, and a few other ingredients, add some vanilla, and you've got cake, right? That's complex specified information. It's information that has a productive aspect or result to it. Now, it is possible for random chance to create limited amounts of information. Let me give you an example or an illustration. Take a container of Scrabble pieces, throw them out just randomly and turn them over and line them up, the 26 characters of the alphabet. And what you would happen to find is along the string of 26 letters, you might run across two letters in a row that spell a word. You might find if or it. You might even find a little bit more complex word. You might find run, a three-letter word. Maybe on a rare occasion, you might find in the random selection, even an occasional four-letter word, not the kind that we shouldn't say, but words like from and things like that. The other could happen, but we're not going to talk about that tonight. Amen? Now, however, if you were to throw 26 characters of the alphabet out from a Scrabble canister and you lay them out in line, edge to edge, and you find the word complexity, what does that tell you? That tells you somebody was messing with the little uh, letters, right? There had to be somebody, an intelligent agent, that was manipulating the Scrabble pieces in order for such a complex word to be found by just a random throw. Now, interestingly, when science entered the age of microbiology, what they found was not proof of the theory of evolution and simplistic life forms, but rather what they found was the necessity of an intelligent agent, all the way down once they breached the realm of even the DNA molecule. What they found inside the DNA molecule were miniature factories all performing performing functions, RNA, DNA, storage units, transfer RNA, that were giving complex specified information within the DNA molecule for the building of proteins out of amino acids. Now, one of the favorite illustrations of the distinction between chance and design is that of the coin toss. Uh, now, you have a coin toss. Did I say coin toss? That's Greek. I'm sorry. I was trying to say it in English. But the fact is, the odds of heads or tails is what? One out of two. There's two sides of the coin, right? So it doesn't matter, and there have been models where coins have been tossed uh, via computer uh, uh, 
thousands, hundreds of thousands of times. And they are always going to fall within a range of 60, 40-ish, somewhere around in that area. Now, if you were to toss the coin 100 times and it comes out heads 100 times, what does that tell you? It's outside the realm of probabilities. And therefore, there has to be an intelligent agent involved. Now, listen, when we talk about the formation of even simple proteins and say a simple protein that's a, a thousand amino acids long, we have to understand that this is outside the realm of simple chance because proteins are formed by amino acids and it isn't as though when we're presented with gradualism or materialism as though these things are just floating out within the 10 to the 80th power of elementary particles in the universe and they just bump into each other and stick together. That's not how proteins form. There are binding sites and amino acids and proteins have to fold in order to fit together and therefore there is no way that even a simple protein, a hundred or a thousand amino acids long, could happen by random chance. There had to be something, someone directing them and there is an intelligent agent that created all things and his name is Yahweh. And he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, I think we recognize Things happen by chance all the time. And natural selection is not an abstract thought. The survival of the fittest. That's still true today, right? Survival of the fittest is an evolution, though. It's just a fact. The strong survive. Now, the fact is, there are people who are strong in mind and body, and that's true within the animal kingdom as well. And the strong do survive. But we have to recognize, if you see a donkey win the Kentucky Derby... There's been some outside manipulation. Either the race was fixed or there was something inserted into the donkey. Now, I remember the story of a Sunday school teacher who asked her class, what is faith? And one boy raised his hand and he said, faith is believing in stuff you know ain't true. <laughs> and you know what? That's exactly how the world looks at us for believing the creation narrative. It looks at us like we're believing in some ridiculous fable that is so beyond the realm of possibility that it makes us look as though we are fools. Now, the world wants to make us feel foolish because we believe in something that everybody knows is not true. And Paul says, although they knew God for his invisible attributes are clearly seen in creation, they suppress the truth, resulting in them becoming futile in their thoughts. Now, the Greek word suppress means to withhold, detain, restrain, or even hinder the advance of. Futile means to be passive or morally wicked, idolatrous, vain, or even empty. Well, let me remind you of some of my favorite verses from the Psalms in 19, 7 through 11. King David said, the law of the Lord is what? Next slide. The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, more are they to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb, moreover by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Let me ask you something. Are we living in an age where the truth about creation is being suppressed? Is it being replaced with something else that is scientifically impossible? Well, what is the consequence of doing so 
And has our nation followed that path? Well, here's the first thing I want you to take note of in the digression of Romans 1. To reject God as creator is to deny the existence of absolute truth. If you reject that God is creator, you are rejecting or denying the existence of absolute truth. Now, the law in Psalm 19, that's an idiom for the whole of the word of God, is perfect. And it is capable of perfecting or saving the soul. And reject creation as presented in the Bible is to reject the Bible as being perfect, meaning complete. Where Psalm 119, 160 says, the entirety of your word is what? Truth. And every one of your righteous judgments endures for three weeks. No, endures forever. Now, listen, the Bible is irreducibly complex. The complex specified information in it is not to be altered or trifled with, lest you do damage to the whole of it and degrade it as all mutations do. And denying an intelligent designer, which is God, as a creative source of the universe is to suppress the truth, resulting in an exchange of truth for the lie, of which evolution is part of, but the lie specifically is idolatry. Now, you cannot do that without consequence of damage to society. So let's see if this continues in our narrative here, or our digression rather. In 22 to 25, we're also told this, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the what? The lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than who? The creator. Now, there's a link back to the previous verses we made here, and I want to address that first. Verse 25 says that they worship the creature rather than the creator. Now, that's an interesting word in the Greek. It's katisis, and actually what it means is the act of creating. So what that tells us is that instead of worshiping the creator, they worship the process. They worship the act of creating. Is that what's happening today? Are people worshiping or bowing and prostrating and submitting to? That's what worship means. Evolution, gradualism, materialism. Are people bowing before that today? The act of creating instead of the creator himself. And indeed, we know that this is so. And the consequences of this profession of people who say there is no God, according to Psalm 14.1, is that they are fools. And the Greek word alasso, meaning they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for glorifying corrupted man and birds, animals, and insects. And because of this practice, God will give those who do so over to uncleanness and to long in their hearts for things that dishonor their body. That's the digression of Romans 1, which results in an exchange of the truth for the lie. Now, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 11, you guys still here? Reminds us the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of who? Satan. With all power, signs, and what kind of wonders? Lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them what? Delusion. Strong delusion. Do we live in an age of delusion today? That they should believe the lie and that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth, but
but had pleasure in what? Unrighteousness. Now, there are grave consequences for being ashamed of the creation narrative where the gospel is first recorded and upon which God's authority is therefore established, as is the authenticity of his word. Now, we could summarize the second consequence of the digression as this. Denying the existence of absolute truth can only lead to believing lies. Denying the existence of absolute truth can only lead to believing lies. And our digression connects one as a downward step from the other. Man was created with a need to believe in something greater than himself. That's why we have some 285,000 plus religions in the world today. People need to believe there is something outside of our simple existence today. Something that can explain or answer the big questions of life. Where did we come from? What's the purpose of life? What happens after we die? Is there life after death? The materialist or Darwinian evolutionist believes we came from nothing and therefore life has no meaning. And there's nothing after this life and hundreds of millions and even billions of people believe that very thing. However, in contrast, the Christian creationists believe we were created in the image and likeness of God. Life is rich with purpose and meaning. I love being alive, don't you? I love life. I love living for God. And there is a life after this. And guess what? The next one is better. And it's longer. And there's no elections. And there's no mortgages. And there's no car payments. And there's no any of those things. And we're going to be in heaven for a long, long time. I love what Dr. Mark, uh, Mark Hitchcock says. What problem do you have that the rapture wouldn't solve? <laughs> Amen? We have a problem and pain-free existence awaiting us. Now, in light of that, Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16, therefore gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as what kind of children? Obedient children, which is described or defined as not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in most of your conduct. No, in all of your conduct, because it is written, what? Be holy, for I am holy. Peter goes on to say in 2 Peter 3, 11 to 13, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for, here's some good news, a new heavens and a new earth in which, what dwells? Righteousness dwells. Man, heaven is going to be awesome. Amen? Now, reminds me of the story of a pastor who was saying, who is ready to go to heaven? And everybody in the congregation raised their hand except for one little boy in the front row. Then the pastor said, who is ready to go to heaven? Again, everybody raised their hand except one boy in the front row. Then finally the pastor said, whoever's ready to go to heaven, stand up. Everybody stood except for one boy in the front row. And then the pastor looks at the boy and says, son, don't you want to go to heaven? And he says, well, sure, but I thought you were putting together a group to go right now. <laughs> I want to go in the group plan, don't you? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Now think about all that has happened since our nation began to promote the process over the instantaneous creation of things by God as we see them today. 
Now, the vehicle that thrust evolution into the forefront of American higher thinking was what's called often the Scopes Monkey Trial, or commonly referred to as the Scopes Evolution Trial. It took place on July 10th of 1925. The defendant was a man, he was a high school teacher, his name was John Thomas Scopes, and he was accused of teaching evolution in school, which was a violation of a law that was on the books in Tennessee called the Butler Act. It was illegal to teach evolution in school. I think we need to reinstitute the Butler Act, amen? And therefore, it was considered to be a denial of creationism. And by teaching that man had descended from apes, the theory of evolution, via scopes, uh, or scopes rather, was charged with breaking the law. He was found guilty. The trial took place in Dayton, Tennessee, and was a result of really a carefully orchestrated series of, of events uh, that was brought about by local businessmen hoping to raise money and draw business to the city, and indeed it worked. And in reality, Scopes himself said, I don't know if I taught evolution or not. I just read what was in front of me. And he, therefore, at the urging of those who wanted to advance this uh, evolutionary narrative, agreed to incriminate himself. He was found guilty, fined a hundred bucks. But evolution was thrust into the mainstream media. Now, since then, if we consider that man had begun to worship the act of creation rather than the creator himself, we have followed the digression presented in Romans. The moral slide and the parallels with Romans 1 has been remarkable. World War II took many women out of the home and put them in the workplace. There's nothing wrong with working outside the home. Amen, ladies? That was pretty weak. But it's true. You look at the Proverbs 31 woman, and she was a, a resourceful woman. Uh, she was a wonderful craftsman. She was in the real estate business, buying and selling property and all those things. However, the dynamic of the home changed after World War II. One generation, what happened? One generation later, what happened? We had in the 60s the what? The sexual revolution. And the moral slide has continued to the point that most who worship the act of creation over the creator believe that gender is actually a choice, not a biological predetermination or physiology or genetic coding. Now, I don't know about you, but looking at the Bible, I'm going to go with that. I don't think there's 63 genders to choose from. I think there's one boy and one girl, and they are fitted for reproduction according to God's plan. Now, all this went mainstream in America, listen, because the defense attorney in the Scopes trial, Clarence Darrow, thought believing in the Bible was something to be ashamed of. And today, the vast majority of Americans agree with him. Now, as for me and my house, we're going to stick with the observable, testable, and provable facts that are presented in the Word of God as to how things came into being. Colossians 1:16 to 18 said, He, Jesus, is the image, the icon of the invisible God. He is the firstborn. That word is a title. It doesn't mean he was born first. He is the firstborn. He is the heir of all things over all creation. For by him, by Jesus, all things were what? Created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, speaking of the spiritual realm, all things, say all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. Now get this, and in him, verse 17 says, all things consist, meaning they are held together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Now, there were questions that Clarence Darrow 
asked William Jennings Bryant that he was ashamed to answer. And therefore, Christianity looked foolish in the eyes of the media and public. He asked questions like, where did Cain get his wife? He asked also, how could a man be swallowed by a whale? How can you believe such a ridiculous story? I'm not ashamed to answer those questions, even though it's kind of yucky, at least the first one. Where did Cain get his wife? He married his sister. Say, ooh. Yeah, that's kind of bizarre to us, but we have to remember it's the only way for humanity to increase in number, and both of them were near genetically perfect, and therefore there was no risk of mental or physical deformity in doing so, and on top of that, the law of Moses has not been instituted. Is it weird to us? Is it factual? Yes, no other option. And one of the other things I think that we need to be able to answer is Jonah was not swallowed by a whale. The Bible doesn't say he was swallowed by a whale. It says God prepared a great fish. Are whales fish? No, whales are mammals. They're air breathing. Jonah wasn't swallowed by a whale. He was swallowed by a fish that God has prepared. And if God can say, let there be light, and in three days later create the heavenly luminaries, he can certainly prepare a fish to take a man on a three-day Mediterranean cruise and then puke him on the beach. Amen? I'm not ashamed of these elements of the gospel narrative. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if he can do that, he can do everything else the Bible says. Amen? Amen. Now, let's take a look at 26 to 32, and we'll wrap our time up, and I'll have you home in time for breakfast. 26 says, for this reason, because of all the things that we just read, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is what? Shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, parallel verses to 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, bo proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things, now listen close, are deserving of what? Death. Not only do the same, but also, what's the next word? approve of those who practice them. Now, our text has given us a moral digression that has led us to live in days as they were in Noah's day. And we began that digression with being ashamed of the creation narrative, in which is the first preaching of the gospel in all the Bible. And to reject God as creator is to deny the existence of absolute truth. Denying the existence of absolute truth can only lead to believing lies. And the final stage of the digression is what we just read. In verse 24, we see those who worship the act of creation instead of the actual creator are given over to uncleanness. Verse 26 says God gave them up to vile passions. Verse 28 says God finally gives them over to a debased mind because they did not like to retain God as a part of their thinking. Now, the consequences, therefore, are morally cataclysmic. 
women and men acting against what biology and physiology clearly reveal, and they violate the natural reproductive process by lusting for one another, committing what is shameful, and even experiencing the temporal and possibly the eternal consequences of rejecting God lest they repent. Aren't you glad that no matter how you have lived your life at any given point in time, you can accept Christ as Lord and Savior and be forgiven of all your sin? Isn't that good news? We've been studying the book of Acts at our church. This morning we looked at Acts 9, 1 to 9, and the Apostle Paul breathing threats and murder against the church, headed out to Damascus, Syria, to kill and imprison Christians. And the Lord apprehended him on the road to Damascus, shone the light of his word into his life, and Paul became radically saved. Listen, you don't know anybody that is beyond the reach of the saving power of Jesus' blood. So if you have told your relatives a hundred times about Christ and they have rejected him, tell them 101. Tell them 102. You keep preaching Christ and him crucified because there is power and authority in the gospel of God. And you all said, Amen. Amen. Now, in summary, we could say that between Romans 1 and 2 Timothy 3, beginning with the rejection of God as creator, the moral and spiritual degradation of man reaches the same place that it did in Noah's day, where the thoughts and intents of man's heart is only evil continually. In the last days, we have invented things like abortion or mass-produced it at least, and it's called a woman's right, and there's nothing right about it. They call those who stand for good evil today, and they believe in things about sexuality that even nature denies, and those who believe in absolute truth are called bigoted and hateful. Have you ever heard those titles assigned to Christians today? We are in the last days as it was in Noah's day. But verse 32 is the chilling result of such thinking. And it also broadens the scope of consequences, not just to the practice of those things, but it includes the approval of them. And Paul said there will be within the morally and spiritually degraded society exampled by Rome a form of godliness but denying the power. Now remember what Paul said in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for, what's the next word? Everyone who believes. The denial of the power of is the denial of the gospel, which is directly attached to the creation narrative. And the form that God, or Paul spoke of, of godliness, comes from the Greek word morphosis, which means to form out of something that previously existed. So if we pair Romans 1 with 2 Timothy 3, we have to conclude that those who practice and those who approve of the practice of the things recorded in both places, yet claim they are still part of God's kingdom. We are to turn away from such people. Now, God says through his word that the practice and approval of such things marks those who do so for the divine judgment of the second death. That's what it means of those who are deserving of death. That's not speaking of the first death. It's appointed unto man once to die. All people die, right? The birth to death ratio is still one to one. Everybody born still dies except one generation that is uh, translated supernaturally uh, by a supernatural agent into the presence of God. 
Uh, we're thankful for that. We talked about that the last time I was here as we looked at the rapture uh, of the church. But let's come full circle here and bring things to a close. Are we there yet? We're there. And now we see how we got there. And the fact is, there's nothing beyond this digression that we have other than Paul saying in chapter 2, verse 1, therefore you are inexcusable, O man. And man has reached the end of that digression largely, and yet we know that even during the tribulation, God is still going to be saving souls. As a matter of fact, there's going to be a huge revival during the tribulation. But here's what we need to take away as our final and concluding point of this digression of Romans 1. And it's just this, listen, believing lies will always lead to rampant moral failure. Are we seeing our nation steeped in immorality today? Where did it begin? Denying God as creator and therefore the existence of absolute truth. And failing to believe absolute truth opens you and makes you vulnerable to believing lies. And when moral failure reaches a place where God gives people over to it, in other words, it reaches an irreversible state, then the digression is complete and final. And the only way to bring it to an end is divine judgment, just as happened in Noah's day. And as it was in the days of Noah, because of the practice and approval of immorality, idolatrous man becomes largely deserving of death. Now think about what happens in Revelation. You see it twice, that they know that the judgment that they are encountering is from him who sits on the throne and the Lamb. Revelation 6 and Revelation 9. They know that they are being judged by God. Do they repent? It says they would not repent of their idolatries, sorceries, and sexual immorality. Listen, we have arrived at a time that is comparable to the days of Noah. Now, the takeaway for us is Jesus is coming soon. And it's time for us to look up. And we need to recognize until then, as Peter said, God is holy. And he requires that his children live with his definitions of right and wrong. Now, he's not open to human amendments to his moral code or replacing what a spiritually pleasing and empowered life is. He alone has the right to do those things. So my hope is by recognizing the journey, we can see that time is short. Christ is coming. We have much to do in these closing seconds or maybe minutes of life as we know it on earth. And therefore, our passion for the lost and perishing needs to be greater than it has ever been before. Judgment is looming. Think about the parallel of the days of Noah. I've always found this to be fascinating. We're told that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So that means he was preaching. What was he preaching? Righteousness. Now think about this. Noah was building an ark, a boat, over 500 feet long for over 110 years on dry ground on a planet where it had never rained. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have thought something's up. Something's coming. And yet, how many people got on the ark? Ocho. That's Spanglish for eight. But it's interesting, if you look at the ark, I was just last Monday at the ark project back uh, in Kentucky. Pretty amazing thing to see. There was room for lots of people. 
but only eight got on the boat. And the Lord has told us things will be like that. The righteous will be relatively few in comparison to the number of unrighteous who want nothing to do with God in the last days. But there's still room. There's still room for people to come to Jesus. And God is still not willing that any should perish. And his desire is that all would come to 412 Church. I mean, all would come to repentance. <laughs> Amen? So let's be praying for the lost around us. Time is short, shorter than it was yesterday. Jesus is coming soon, and our redemption is nigh. So let's keep our heads lifted up, and let's keep our voices preaching the gospel and not be ashamed of creation or any other component of God's written word. Amen?